You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Episode 91, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun, informative format through expert analysis. Today, we're going to be discussing COVID, schools, and immunity. Uh, this is a topic which is, I think, becoming more pertinent as we come close to this, closer and closer to the school year. Also, more evidence is coming out about COVID and its patterns, infectious rates, and immunity. And so we're going to go into that a little bit today and kind of get a feel for where we are today in the United States and what we're going to do for moving forward into the fall and winter. Uh, before we get to that, I'd like to recommend that if you want to check out the show notes, you can find them at theparadox.com slash 091. There you can find links to some of the articles I'm going to cite, uh, studies, and uh, documents, especially with the American Academy of Pediatrics and their statement on going back to school. Uh, you can find all those, and those would be good resources for you moving forward. I'd also ask you, if you've not yet subscribed to the show, please be sure to hit the subscribe button in your favorite podcast player wherever you listen to the show. Also, be sure to share it with your friends. Make sure you don't miss any exciting shows, and also go back to the blog at theparadox.com slash blog. There you can get an episode list of all the shows you may or may not have listened to. If you find some topics you find interesting, please feel free to download and listen to those, and also share them with your friends. It has been through your support and sharing the show that has made the show as popular as it is, and it's really exceeded my wildest expectations, to which I give you a hearty thank you. I'd also like to all thank all my patrons on patreon.com slash theparadox, that's T-H-E-P-R-A-D-O-C-S, where you can financially support the show with a recurring monthly payment. That is super appreciated and helps defray a lot of the costs of the, putting the show together. But without further ado, let's discuss COVID, schools, and immunity. So I'll start with a question. How long are you okay without church, concerts, sports, schools, funerals, weddings, movies, large gatherings of any sort, going to restaurants, going out shopping? How long are you okay not doing those things? And I ask this question not in an accusatory manner or trying to denigrate someone's position, 
but I think it's just a good thoughtful experiment to question, you know, what is okay and not okay with you and with me? And I think everyone has a different level of what they are okay with. There are certain parts of life which we're totally fine not having in our lives anymore. For instance, if you don't follow sports, if sports disappeared, yeah, you're fine. Maybe those of you who like football but don't care about baseball, summer's been okay because you haven't had baseball, but it didn't bother you. For some, it doesn't matter that there are no concerts. They don't go to concerts. Or maybe they don't go to live performances like plays or ballet, opera, just general symphonies. But for some, this is not only an important part of their life and their cultural experiences, but for many, this is actually a career. I know at least one person I work with, her daughter just finished college and she has a job with a local ballet, but she hasn't been able to dance. And the prospects of dancing are who knows when. People who rely on their income for live performances, they're obviously also not able to perform as they are trained and enjoy doing. I would look personally at my family, and as many of you listen to the show, obviously know my son passed away almost two years ago now. He was part of the men and boys choir here in Grand Rapids. And, you know, very large part of his life and important thing for him was part of the choir. Well, choral singing, of course, is seen as extremely dangerous or more effective than other activities. And so the choir is basically closed down. And for those boys, once your voice changes, you're out. It's possible there could be a whole generation, which is four or five years maybe for these boys, where they can get to the point where they can sing and then before the voice changes, where they can actually be participate in a choir like this. Now, it doesn't it's not the end of the world if people could never do that again. But for some people this is incredibly important. For a choir, obviously, it's important to keep the legacy going and to keep singing. If you were closed down for a couple of years, would you be able to start up again? Would you be able to get your audience back? Uh, specifically with our choir, there's a significant problem because a lot of the patrons are elderly. So even singing to a concert, not only do you have people who maybe are more likely to get people infected because there's the, the activity they're in with choral music and spreading the infection, but also you have people who are highly vulnerable who are coming from nursing homes or care facilities to listen to the concert. And so these are all considerations we have to think about. But the experiment is really, the thought experiment really focuses around what do you think is important to you and how, how long are you willing to go without whatever it is? Because I think a lot of people are under the impression that this is a very short-term problem, that we're going to be shut down for eh, six months, maybe nine. We'll have a vaccine soon. That's what the president tells us, or you know, the officials in the government or our governors tell us uh, that we're going to have a vaccine soon, that we'll have effective treatments, and we're going to you know, be, we'll have this thing licked within a year or so, maybe two at the tops. But are you okay not doing those things for two years? Is it okay not seeing your elderly parent who has declining mental st- state, how are they going to do? Probably not very well without seeing having in contact with people, trying to get an 85-year-old with early onset Alzheimer's to suddenly manage FaceTime or things like that. Uh, it's, for one thing, not the same as human touch is very important, but you know the stimulation mentally is going to be challenging for people to have them locked up all the time if they're, they're elderly and in mental decline. But I think these are important things to just think about because I think, you know, the answer to it really affects how you look at going forward. If you say, well, I'm okay without these things for five years or 10 years, or I never have to go to a concert. I never have to have any large gatherings. I never have to go to a wedding or a funeral again. I never have to gather with large amounts of people. Church isn't important. Uh, 
not only do I think that's probably not true <laughs> if you say that, uh, but uh, you're and you're a social hermit, uh, but it will affect how your tolerance on risk. Because if I were to say that the way things are right now is how they're going to be for the next 10 years, I think people feel very differently about their approach to going about life, going about shopping, doing things, than if I said there's a temporary three-month shutdown, which is how it's sort of been sold. Uh, it certainly has been sold at, at worst. We're looking at nine months, maybe 12 months. And I think that's probably not a realistic uh, expectation, but I don't know. And I think, as I've mentioned in a couple of Facebook videos and a couple of times the show as well, the important thing I think when you listen to people talk about COVID is they have to have a level of humility because no one can know these things. There are some things we can know. I throw a ball up, it falls down. But it comes to epidemiology, comes to spread of diseases like this, Understanding the disease as novel, meaning it's brand new, it's never been seen before. We don't know how it behaves, we don't know how to treat it, we don't know lots of things. We're learning those things, but no one knows these things and knows exactly how things are going to progress. We don't know why there are outbreaks in certain cities and not others, for instance. I think that's a real important question that we need to understand. We don't know what we need for immunity. There are all sorts of questions we don't know. And so anyone who speaks with you with certainty, I think is someone you should just ignore. If they hedge or at least recognize that they may not know or that they say this is the best possible information that we know right now. Those are the people I think are worth listening to. And then you have to recognize that everyone has different levels of risk that they're willing to tolerate. Some people are so terrified that they will tolerate any no risk. Uh, others will feel like there's no risk at all. But that is either real or imagined, right? We don't really know what the risk is for anything because we don't really know enough about the disease. Just as you don't know the risk of you getting in a car and make it to your destination, sometimes you'll, I mean, most of the time you'll make it, almost all the time, but sometimes you won't. You never know. Uh, and so that's sort of like this disease, right? So what is your relative risk of going about life and what and contracting this, maybe dying or having some other sort of complication? But I think the important question is to ask yourself, how long are you okay with think the way things are? Because if I tell you that we're probably three or four years away from having an effective vaccine and treatment regimen, and are you okay putting your life and everything on hold for three to four years? Or are you okay for two years? Are you okay for one year? Again, those are the questions you need to ask yourself. Do not assume that this is a very temporary situation, because it may not be. And if you go in with that expectation, then it's going to make you look at what you're doing right now and maybe rethink about your approach to things. Because if, obviously, if are you willing to give all those things up for a long, long time? Or are you willing to say, that's just the way things are going to be. Life's just going to have a little extra risk involved. And I'm just going to accept that risk and go forward with life. These are questions you have to ask yourself. And these are things that we're not having this discussion publicly because there's an assumption that there's going to be some magic cure or vaccine that's going to solve everything in just a few, you know, few months. So let's talk about the vaccine. What if people refuse to get it? Are you going to mandate this vaccine? Oh, we live in a free country. Uh, you certainly could have requirements by your employer to, to use a vaccine. Most employers can't force you to get things. If you're in healthcare, they can, for licensing reasons, they can actually require you to. So I suspect myself and all the people I work with in the hospital will absolutely have to get the vaccine and will have to be vaccinated, whether it's effective or not. There's obviously been a lot of questions on how long vaccine would be effective. When people get infected with covid it seems like they have developed antibodies and they last for a few months at least, but that's not that long. And so what's your chance of getting reinfected? So maybe you have immunity to COVID for six months and then can you get reinfected later? 
Well, if you get a vaccine, you have theoretically the same problem. Maybe you can get a heightened immune response. So instead of six months, you can buy a year. But probably whatever vaccine we're getting, we'll have to anticipate that people have to get boosters every year until we get to past the point where we don't think we need the vaccine anymore. So let's just assume that we have a 100% effective vaccine, uh, creating immunity for a year. So we're going to say that once you get it, no problem. Right now, we can say the survival from COVID, and again, I'm not talking about morbidity, which means long-term complications and problems you can have from getting this at some point, which certainly there are going to be some. We don't know what they are. We don't know what percentages are, but we'll just take just death rate at the moment because that's kind of the one thing that we have. It's an endpoint we can sort of understand and at least measure a little bit more accurately than we can morbidity and problems that you might have long-term because those are even harder to sort of categorize where the what the cause was. But the survival rate is probably around 99.5%, uh, maybe a little bit higher, maybe a little bit lower. So meaning the amount of people who pass away once they get infected is between 0.3 and 1%. We're not sure exactly where it is, but we'll just say it's 99.5%. Now we're going to do a little math here. So bear with me for a little bit. And I've worked the numbers a couple of times to make sure they're right. <laughs> it certainly feel free to email me if you find it wrong. We don't know the overall infection rate. is like how many people are going to get infected with the disease. It looks like right now between 5 and 10% of the country has probably been exposed to coronavirus and has gotten it, uh, whether they're symptomatic or asymptomatic. Again, really hard to know for sure. You look at antibody tests, you look at um, T-cell immunities, you look at people who have actually had positive infections. So we can guess it's between 5 and 10%. Let's just say 5% people get it every year. So if there's an infected rate is 5%. So your chance of getting coronavirus is 1 in 20. So out of 20 people, one person is going to get it. And we already said that your chance of dying from coronavirus was 1 in 200. So that means your chance of contracting COVID and dying is 1 in 4,000. So 4,000 people, you know, one person out of that 4,000 is going to pass away. So to put that in perspective, because I think it's important to know what relative risk is, right? So you could say, is it really risky to drive a motorcycle 100 miles an hour down the road? Most people say, yes, sure it is. And you'd say, well, what is the risk of driving your car? And uh, Or what's the risk of getting an airplane? Because you always hear this, right? Like, what's your chance of when you embark on a trip that you make it to your destination safely? Well, statistically, without a doubt, it's much safer to fly than it is to drive. And, you know, we although we hear about every single plane accident there is, generally, if it's not like a small private plane, uh, we our impression can be that the relative risk is actually worse. And so that's why people can be very frightened of flying, but totally comfortable driving, even though it's a much more dangerous activity. And the chance of dying at every mile tra traveled is much, much higher in a car, like by orders of magnitude, than it is in a plane. But our perception is not that. So it's important to know what the true ris risks of these things are. It doesn't mean uh, that to minimize the death or the tragedy that occurs. It just gives you an idea of what is the overall risk. So when you look at the country, uh, CDC website, uh, when you look at traumatic deaths, I believe it's from 2016 or 17, the, the traumatic death rate, so these are people who are accidentally poisoned, who have car accidents, generally car accidents, but other sorts of accidents, uh, and falls, accidental falls. And their mortality from that is 52.2 out of 100,000, or... Two in 4,000. So your chance of assuming, you know, we have our COVID experiment where we have 5% infected, 99.5% survival rate, you have a relative risk of 2.1 out of 4,000 versus 1 out of 4,000 for COVID. So you're twice as likely 
to die of a traumatic death, poisoning, accident, or fall than you are of COVID. Now, if we double the rate of COVID, let's say 10% can get it, then we've pretty much said that's about the same rate as traumatic deaths. Now, this, of course, is terrible in the sense that it's double the amount of people dying <laughs> because you've, instead of having just two people, now you say you have four per, you know, 4,000. Uh, but I think, you know, that to look at the relative risk, it's important because that gives you a little bit of an idea of how, what is, how risky is it that you're likely to die from COVID. Now, obviously, there are other problems you can have <laughs> from COVID. Like we said, there's other morbidity. But I would say the same is true of accidents, right? Many, many more people are involved in car accidents that suffer minor or minor to severe critical injuries that eventually survive than people who actually die from the injuries. The same could probably would probably be said of COVID. Uh, so you're obviously adding a new thing that's going to cause all sorts of problems. But let's look at it realistically as your actual risk of getting is and dying from it is still incredibly low, I would say. It's not zero. It's not as low as you want it to be, which of course is zero. Uh, but it's not so certain that it's going to happen. And I think that's important to keep in mind just as we go forward because we're going to be focusing on vaccines, immunity, and what exactly is this proper strategy going forward with COVID. Well, let's discuss right now vaccines. I think if you look at the most sites, say there are 18 to two or three dozen, it's really kind of hard to know the specific number of vaccines that are in production worldwide right now for COVID. Obviously, the entire world needs COVID. Was that seven, eight billion doses are going to be needed annually, <laughs> assuming we were to vaccinate everybody and to have boosters every year. So we need a large scale production. We also don't have any effective vaccines at this point. And when you look at vaccinations, now the Chinese, I think, are actually getting close to administering them. But there are three different phases of vaccine trials. Phases one and two are fairly quick. Now, the time frames I'm going to give you are actually not accurate for this because we've act, we've actually skipped a lot of the usual time that we're required for these phases. We're rushing these things through. And so what normally would take 10 to 20 years to develop a vaccine, we're going to attempt to do in less than a year. Uh, I think this is not realistic, but I will go through the numbers here and just give you an idea of what these trials are. The phase one trial is where they try and figure out the safety and dosage of vaccines. So usually it requires a couple dozen to maybe 100 volunteers where they test out the vaccine on it at people and to see how much is needed to get the appropriate response that they want. This phase one trial takes a few months usually. We go to phase two. Phase two usually requires a few hundred people and it's looking for efficacy, meaning how effective the vaccine is, and for side effects, obvious side effects, right? If you suddenly have a lot of people with a problem, you know that you've got some problems with your vaccine. If you have, you know, half the people get something, then you say, well, this is going to be something we're going to see a lot of. And then that takes usually months to a few years to get that done. Uh, you know, months to two years. Phase three is the large part of this trial, and it's the slowest part of the development process. And this is the large thing, which once again looks at efficacy, how effective this vaccine is. But they also want to monitor adverse events. So outside of looking at obvious side effects, you're looking for things that might not occur right away. This is, requires a lot of people. Um, you know, it's hard to say exactly how many. Usually it's at least 300, but usually a few thousand people. But the hard thing about this is you actually need to have a control group, someone who gets placebo, meaning they don't get anything, and you have people who get the actual vaccine. And you need to see how people do with the vaccine and without the vaccine. 
So what does that mean? That means you have to have people who had COVID with a vaccine and people who had COVID without the vaccine, which means what? You need to have people who actually get COVID and get exposed and how effective they get over it or are infected. And this is not something that happens quickly. This is what takes many years because you have to basically have given someone a fake vaccine and to see if they get sick with whatever it is and what their outcomes are. And so it requires a fairly prevalent disease available. Now, you can imagine if you have someone like getting developing a vaccine like Ebola, where it's incredibly dangerous, it's hard to have people volunteer for this sort of thing. And especially when you have a disease that's not very prevalent, meaning it's not super, super common, it takes a while for everyone to get this. This is the part that's going to slow down a lot of these trials. And I think this is the part that is that people don't recognize that it's going to take a many months, if not at least a year, to get people who they've they have satisfactory phase three uh, trial. Now, this can be a rush. You can just say, we're going to kind of not worry so much about finishing this trial, or we're going to go ahead and start giving out the medications before then. Uh, China, it sounds like, I was reading that it sounds like they're basically going to give a vaccine and use their entire army, the Red Army, as the phase three trial. So they're going to give bunch of them the vaccine and have a bunch not get vaccinated because they're, you know, it's an authoritarian government. You can do what you want. And uh, they'll just see how it works. And they'll give it to the rest of their population if it's effective. That's something we don't do in this country because <laughs> we have informed consent and you have to um, be volunteered for these sorts of studies. So they will have to find people who volunteer to either get a placebo or actual vaccine and then see what happens. Uh, this is going to take a while. This is why I do not believe that we're going to have a vaccine in just a few months. I think it's, I mean, it'll be available, but it's going to be available for this trial. I, I, and they've started the trial, but it's going to take a while to get enough people who have been infected, who have the placebo arm to have any sort of idea of effectiveness for the vaccine. So I tend to believe that this is going to be kind of a slow step. So let's look one little step further now and go back a little bit to more math. And let's look at kids because we're going to talk about schools. And I think vaccination and immunity is important here. The rate of death in kids is harder to know exactly. It's incredibly low from COVID. We're guessing between one to two per 100,000. That's the number of sources uh, that estimate this. Uh, if you look at those who are over 80, it's probably about 7,800 per 100,000. So you have about a seven, well, about a seven to 8,000 times higher chance risk of death in contracting COVID if you're over the age of 80 versus someone who's a child. And child, children, we're going to say, are people who are like under 14 or so. Um, so this means that your chance as a kid is super, super low for getting COVID. I mean, we said before all comers, it's maybe 0.5% die from COVID, but kids is significantly less than that, which really means that the risk for kids is so low that you have to have an incredibly high safety factor for a vaccine. If you think about this, it makes sense, right? You don't want to have something that can cause side effects and cause anaphylaxis or sort of significant risk to death uh, from a vaccine if you have something that is very unlikely to cause death, right? You don't want the medicine to be worse than the disease. To give you an idea, the general anaphylactic rate for vaccinations is incredibly low. It's about one to three, uh, sorry, about 1.3 per 1 million doses or about 0.1 for 100,000. That gives you a safety factor of about 10. So if we said the death rate is 1 to 2 per 100,000 for kids and the anaphylactic rate for kids would be 0.1, it's about a, they about have a, they're about 10 times more likely to have 
uh, a death from a COVID than they are to have an anaphylactic reaction, which is a decent safety profile. But you realize it's kind of razor thin now at the point of, because those are things people talk about. And if you have a couple people who mention that, uh, they have kids who do, because if you think about how many kids we have in this country, you're going to have probably 10 anaphylactic reactions uh, to the COVID vaccine. And that's not to say any of the other possibility of side effects that we don't know at this point, And we won't know for probably a good 12 to 24 months after the administration of the vaccine. The most prominent recent vaccine that had to be pulled was a rotavirus vaccine, not the current one, but the previous one that was causing significant rates of intussusception, not massive amounts, but enough that it caused real problems because having intussusception, which is basically the bowel that sort of gets pulled into itself and causes an obstruction in the pediatric population requires surgery most often. Uh, it can be life-threatening complication. And for a vaccine, that's something that's probably not going to kill kids. You can see you have to balance these side effects and the risk profiles of the medication. You start having a couple of those failures of vaccines, and now you're going to make people very hesitant to get any vaccine. Uh, so this is why I always say that I'm very concerned about pushing through forward any sort of vaccine quickly because there's the significant risk of having people lose confidence in any vaccine, which is not a good idea. Uh, it would not be a good outcome for us. And even looking at the side effect profiles of the vaccines, the one I read about in China, they had almost 50% of people who had significant fevers after receiving administration of the vaccine, which fever is not the end of the world, but that has to be known, and people feel miserable for a little while. And anyway, those are, <laughs> those are things that, those are just side effects. But those are things that we have to take into account and be ready for. But along those same lines, in the sense that we're talking about morbidity and the immunity, we're going to talk about briefly a couple studies that came out. There are actually two abstracts. One's from Sweden, which suggests significant T-cell immunity to COVID. Now, what does that really mean? Well, people will oftentimes be seronegative, which means they don't have any antibodies in their serum or their blood, basically. And so we'll say, oh, well, they, they've not been exposed to COVID. But it is possible that you can have either not produce antibodies and yet still have immunity. And this is because you have these T cells which can hold a memory or some sort of recognition that when they see something that is foreign, they will recognize that and start producing antibodies and help starting the immune response to disease. So this is why you can get things maybe twice, but the second time is usually more mild. I would suspect that with COVID, you start seeing people getting infected a second time and they'll, you know, they make this big deal like this is going to cause real problems that people get it two, three, four times. And that is true. But every time you have it, you'll probably be much uh, reduced response to the point where you may be totally asymptomatic. I also suspect that, that because people have this T cell immunity, um, that they may, the other coronaviruses that are endemic, there of the, which there are four that are just now common colds that you and I can get. Um, as well as what, adenoviruses and rhinoviruses, but the specific coronaviruses, that our T-cells oftentimes will sort of semi-recognize the new novel um, COVID-19 that's out there, which provides some immunity to you. So that's why some people get really sick and some people don't get sick at all. And I think a lot of that is probably due to this partial recognition from the T-cells, which then start the immune system response and uh, then you could get over it or you may not even recognize it. It's not clear that means you would still have the ability to infect others, even though you may be totally asymptomatic. We think there's evidence that people who are asymptomatic or pre-symptomatic, mean they've not yet expressed symptoms of COVID, are carrying around the ability to get others sick. 
that is still probably a possibility and that may slow the, the reaching the herd immunity to the point where we're okay. But probably at some point with most viruses, you get to the point where there's enough immunity within the community that people just are okay and they don't actually have get significantly sick from the disease and it sort of becomes like a cold, even though right now it seems really deadly. It's not that the virus mutates as much as it is the fact that people just develop partial immunity to it or full immunity to it, at least the more significant uh, side effects. Uh, there's also a German abstract which suggests something similar, and this actually goes along more with it, what I was just saying before, that they looked at, uh, I think it was like 180 people who had COVID and 180 people who didn't have it, um, and this mean those are people who were negative and had never had a positive test for COVID, and they found that of those who had never had exposure, they had 81% had a T-cell response to COVID-19, meaning that they were not susceptible or they were at least granted partial or immunity from the disease. And this also goes along with the lines of probably the fact that we're not seeing 100% of people who get this, even though it's a brand new novel disease, has never been seen by anybody because it's a brand new virus. It never existed before. Yet people are not exhibiting a full onset of symptoms and problems, probably because a number of people have partial immunity to it, um, even though they've actually never seen, haven't developed specific antibodies for this coronavirus. They have it can develop antibodies to other aspects of the coronavirus, which are similar to other coronaviruses, thereby giving some partial immunity. So I think that's actually very good news, and it suggests that we may not actually need to get to the herd immunity that we had previously thought of having 60-80% of people having either antibodies present or having a effective vaccine, which, you know, gives you antibodies. So all this kind of rolls into the next part of the discussion, which is schools. We're coming up to the fall now. We're recording this in early to mid-July. And we don't have really any plan, I think at this point, for what's happening in schools. Schools are just now developing them and releasing these plans. I think most people would say education is an important aspect of childhood in this in this in the Western world. And schooling is important. We can't go without schools for five years. Going back to the question at the beginning of the show, how many, how long are you willing to go without certain things? Are you willing to go without school for five years? I don't think anyone would say that's okay. Uh, now whether how you educate and what school looks like, well that's the question, right? But we have to recognize the risks and again talk about things. So let's talk about School, because right now most schools are releasing plans that are some combination of full online to all in person, and usually it's some sort of hybrid. Uh, kids are at school for a couple hours, and then they go home and do remote, or maybe they're at school for two days and they're remote for three days, or some sort of combination like this. As schools try and develop a process for educating kids, keeping the environment safe, keeping teachers safe, keeping the staff safe, and to try and prevent major spread of COVID. Now, the one encouraging thing about all this is the fact that kids are generally not susceptible to COVID in relation to adults. And when I say kids, I'm talking about pre-adolescents. So what does that mean? Well, actually, if you look at the studies pretty conclusively at this point, and when you look at epidemiological data, kids are about half as likely to get COVID as adults. And there's actually a large portion of children who are basically not susceptible at all. You could sneeze, cough in them, whatever, and they're just not going to get COVID-19. We have no idea why, but it's just the case. And there are other things, viruses and diseases that are like this, that we don't understand, that are like that are the same way with kids. We don't know why they get them. Now, other things about kids, they get sick all the time too, right? And so it is sometimes 
uh, hard to understand why kids seem to get everything, and then in this case, they don't get it. <laughs> and that's because we rarely pay attention to the specific viruses that they contract and become symptomatic from and the ones that they don't because we don't usually care. We don't ever test to see is that an adenovirus or rhinovirus or what kind of coronavirus it is. We don't really usually, it doesn't care, we don't care about it because they get a fever, they get, you know, maybe an ear infection or they get um, a cough or sniffle or something. And, you know, two-year-olds in daycare are always like just wet and just, you know, mucus everywhere and stuff. But the important thing to know is that it's COVID-19 is at least the one not doing those things, generally speaking. So that's good news. It means that Unlike many things where you go, where the infections and the outbreaks can be worsened by having kids in school, like influenza, for instance, in this case, it is much, much less likely that schools would be a location where there's a giant COVID outbreak. It does not mean that kids won't get COVID. It does not mean that there won't be transmission from kids to other kids in schools. That will happen. The rate at which that happens will be much, much, much less than it will be in, say, in a bar or in other situation within, say, a nursing home, where it becomes a significant problem. So there are plenty of resources that show that this is very true, that you look at number of studies in Europe and Canada, that the transmission from kids to kids is much, much lower than it is from adults to adults. In fact, children, even in families with people who are infected, are much more likely to have been the one receiving the infection than the one giving it to their adults. In fact, there are very few instances where it seems like kids have given it to adults. It's generally adults giving it to children. So the kid-to-kid transmission is extremely low. The kid-to-adult transmission is extremely low. The adult-to-kid transmission is much higher. So it's, we're not sure why that is, but for whatever reason, kids just don't seem to just spread it much. And so that's, I think, incredibly good news when it comes to schooling. And as I said, this has been repeated in many countries where they've had kids in school, either for long periods of time, like in Sweden or in other countries in Europe or Singapore. It's not been really a significant problem when you talk about pre-adolescence. Adolescence and above, they transmit sort of similar to adults. And so um, different strategies are required for obviously those situations. So I think the important thing, what I mentioned earlier, is what is their plan going forward? You have to have a plan for a couple things. One is you have to have a plan for what happens when kids get COVID, because it will happen. When you have them get it in school, uh, or you have a kid who's suspected having COVID, has a fever, how do you isolate them? How do you put them in so you don't want to get a bunch of other people sick? You certainly don't want to get teachers sick or staff. Now, encouraging thing is they're unlikely to get sick, or less, much less likely to get sick from kids than uh, they are from an adult having the same problem in school. But there will absolutely be transmission of COVID in some schools. Is your school policy that once one person gets COVID, it closes the school down? If so, there's no point going to school. You have to, <laughs> you can't have that sort of situation. Maybe you say, well, we close it down and deep, deep cleaning for one day and then everyone comes back. Maybe that's a reasonable solution. But you can't have one that's closed down for a couple weeks and comes back. That is not a reasonable alternative to school, you might as well at this point say, we're just going to do everything online. We're going to do all remote learning or have everyone's homeschool or something because having a disjointed education process like that is not helpful to anybody, certainly not kids, not the teachers or the staff. And so we have, cannot have that sort of process. It's the same thing when you look at sports, you say, well, there's, you know, 10 people are infected with COVID on the football team. What are we going to do? We can stop playing football for a month or what? I mean, I guess you could, but if you're going to have, if you're not going to have any sort of plan for how you're going to deal with COVID 
and still carry on, then just don't bother doing it because people are going to get COVID. So same thing with schools. You have to have a plan for what happens in, in school and when you have infections. Maybe you say there's a threshold, like once we have 100 kids or 20 kids or 50 kids, I don't know. <laughs> then you say, those are the people we're going to have, then we're going to have to close the school down. Maybe we have contact tracing. So all the kids in that class or the classroom, they'll have to be tested or something. I, I don't know the right answer, uh, but I would say the best guidelines I've seen are the American Academy of Pediatrics, which is generally a very extremely safety conscious um, professional organization to the point that I think it's sort of ridiculous in many of their you know um, calls to action. However, I would say their COVID response is very sensible. It is very much pro-kid, pro-getting these kids back to school and educating them because they see there's a tremendous importance to having kids get an education and to go to school. And so we have to have a reasonable plan that takes into account all the best information we have, which again, we don't know all the information, probably never will, but we have very good ideas of what kids, where kids are most susceptible, where staff is most susceptible. And, you know, how do we have a way of getting through school in person, which is much more important than having just online. Yes, you can do all online schooling, but there's so much more to school than just being on the computer and learning facts and learning how to read. There's a lot more to school. There's social aspects, etc. And, you know, even if you said, well, homeschool, they don't go to school. Homeschool kids, generally speaking, are very social. They're out and about the community. They're doing other things. And so that they're getting their social aspect, um, sort of the other sort of socialization in a different way than kids are in um, the public schools or private schools, but they're still getting some socialization. And so it's not really any different, except that the way you're doing it is different. Bottom line is you have to have kids in school or getting out and out in the community. They cannot be holed up in a cell for a six by six cell, just staring at a computer screen and expecting that that's going to be an adequate education, especially when you have so many in the community who are, um, not capable of getting the access to the equipment and computers, whatever that they need, uh, internet, uh, they not, don't have the time, they don't have a, a workspace where they can actually concentrate. Uh, those kids can be at a massive disadvantage, and those are things we have to think into account. That's why we have to do everything we can, I think, to have kids in school. And so the AAP has really some really good guidelines. Just briefly, here are a couple things they have. Uh, I would uh, recommend you go to the show notes paradox.com slash 091. There you can get a link to the AAP or you can certainly Google AAP um, back to school guidelines. So they recommend that you have three feet, six foot rule. So if you have kids with masks, they can be three feet apart. They do not have to be six feet apart. The rule for six feet is if you do not have masks on. So our assumption is if your kids are older and the AAP recommends any kids sixth grade or above, absolutely 100% can wear a mask all day long. There's no reason they can't. There's every good reason to think that mask wearing prevents you from infecting other people if you happen to be infected. So you just have to have your mask on and because you're in tight quarters. So you can sit kids three feet apart, which is pretty reasonable within a classroom and have masks on. You have them have it all the times. So obviously when they're eating, you do as much eating in large open spaces as possible outside if possible. And it's obviously not possible in many places, but as much as you can do that, you should try and do that to prevent spread of infection. It's important to have full-time school Kids who are under sixth grade obviously don't have to wear masks all the time. You encourage the mask wearage. They say don't even bother when it's under five or six. There's just no point to trying to, to keep that going. You certainly, I guess, can do it if you want at daycare or uh, pre-K. But 
it's going to be more work, work work than it's worth probably and can cause more problems and be disruptive. And also the fortunate thing is those kids are much, 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 much less likely to spread COVID to each other or to their teachers. The highest risk, of course, the teachers. There are some teachers who will have to try and find alternative methods of wearing a mask. They will all have to wear masks because they are much more likely to get kids sick. They are the threat coming to the school. It is not the kids. So the teachers have to protect each other. So they need to wear masks and they probably need to close the teacher's lounge. And that's a reasonable alternative. So they don't congregate teachers. Uh, the teachers have to have masks. And probably if there's some way of making masks that are transparent, because a lot of important things for the kids from learning is they actually have to see mouths moving and that helps them learning with comprehension. So these are just creative solutions people have to come up with. Um, but the other things obviously would be to limit class moving. Uh, so you have as much limited movement going out about in the hallways. Maybe you have teachers rotate as opposed to having the students rotate where possible. Obviously with certain classes and the way you do things, that's going to be more challenging. But these are things you you want to do everything you can to make it less likely that you have massive outbreaks in your school and that you are more successful in pulling off an in-person school year. Because if you have to go remote, even partially, partially through the school year, I think most people, at least most people I've spoken to, were very disappointed in the remote learning that their kids had experienced in the last few months of the school year. Now, I don't begrudge anyone the, the school system because they didn't plan on that. It was not even <laughs> even two weeks before it happened. No one really knew that was going to happen. And the ability to sort of resource and throw stuff together was really challenging. And so I don't think anyone begrudges that. And, and that's somewhat the problem with the schools right now is they are still sort of in this quasi, we're not sure what we're going to do situation. And so it makes it very difficult for them and it's going to make it very difficult for parents. And I think lots of parents are going to have to make the difficult decision on whether just to bag it and just do schooling at home for their kids or maybe with a, a small homeschool co-op or to try and just go ahead and send the kid to school and hope for the best uh, because schools as we know from our economy and two worker households it makes it very complicated to try and have a kid home all the time especially with certain ages when they're younger unfortunately this whole back to school program recently in the last couple of days has become very politicized as has everything in covid and we're not able to have a reasonable discussion about these things or talk about their actual plans. Um, the AAP, I suspect, and I hope that I'm wrong. I know my wife does not think this is the case since she's a pediatrician and is generally in favor of the AAP, but I think they will probably walk back their recommendations at some point because it has been associated with uh, President Trump, and it seems that as soon as he advocates for anything, then the consensus in the media and within most of the academics and health services is that it's the wrong thing. Although I think the federal government has very little control over whether schools go back to school or not. <laughs> the fact that the president is advocating so strongly for it uh, has turned this into sort of a political thing. And those who are um, in favor of his position will feel compelled not to, especially an organization like the AP, which is probably not as supportive of um, Republicans, much less Trump, as other organizations. Anyway, so I... I hope they hold fast. Um, they are generally still holding firm to their belief that kids need to be in school and that it's important. And hopefully they keep these guidelines up because I think they are a great resource for schools. And I would recommend if you are a school person, uh, a PTO or something like that, and you have the ability to get this to your school board, I think this is 
uh, or a superintendent, I think these are very good guidelines, very reasonable. You can start planning on this. You can probably construct a reasonable school year around this. Obviously, your community may be different in the sense that uh, you may be having a massive outbreak in the community. And as I've always said, this is going to be a community-wide response and local response much more than it is a national or even a statewide response because even what's going on in Miami may not be going in Pensacola, for instance, or what's going on in Houston is not what's going on in San Antonio or in Lubbock, right? So I think these are very large states. And so what might be wrong in one community is the wrong is the right thing in another community and vice versa. So that being said, I think you need to just pay attention to what's going locally, but we need to do what we can to get kids back in school. So I want to end on an encouraging note and to discuss what we talked about a little bit here. I think kids can safely go back to school. I think especially kids, you look at college kids, again, they're almost all going to be totally fine. And you have to have a plan in your school. I know my daughter's going to school and her they have a dorm they're going to have set up that's actually for kids who turn test positive that they go and do remote learning for a while until they're cleared. And that's with an expectation that there will be kids who get sick. That's absolutely the way you need to plan your school year. The other important thing is to know that most people will be totally fine. Even people who are above the age of 80, the fatality rate is still like less than 10%. That's still incredibly high, uh, but most people have comorbidities. Most people will get over this and get better. Yes, there'll be some morbidity that may occur with this COVID. Certainly there will be so, and some we may or may not even know what it is. But I think we need to recognize the relative risk is still fairly low. It's still half of what it is for dying of a traumatic death in this country. That does not mean it's zero. That does not mean it's not a problem, and it's not one that's preventable. And we do all sorts of things to try and prevent accidental deaths, for instance. We have warning labels for poisons. We have watch your step. We have seatbelts and airbags and things like that and helmets. So we do everything we can to minimize things, but we still have to, I think, go about life. And I think my personal feeling is we still need to go about and do what's important in life. We need to weigh the relative risks of what we're doing. If we're finding something we're doing is uh, extra risky, I think we need to take that into account. But we need to be very sensible about it and recognize that the relative risk for COVID is still fairly small. Most people we know will be totally fine if they get it. Uh, We will all know some people who get it at some point and probably die. Uh, But it's not going to be in such massive numbers that we're living in fear, although some will. I think we're much closer to immunity than we think. It'll be interesting to see if there's a second wave in a place that had a hard hit, like in Detroit or New York or New Orleans. I think if we see that those cities don't get any large second waves, then we probably can feel a little bit more comfortable about that our immunity levels are probably going to need to be a lot lower than we think. And that's probably because of these other studies. And that Again, those are abstracts, uh, so they need to be verified and repeated. Uh, but certainly this suggests that we have a lot of latent immunity to COVID that will probably help us get through this problem. And it also means that at some point we'll be able to get back to life much sooner than we thought. I think the demonstrations that occurred back in May uh, for the protesting George Floyd's death uh, with the police brutality, there were massive protests, not only in the United States, but all over the world. But certainly if you just look specifically in the United States, there were tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people gathering outdoors in closed spaces, screaming, yelling, and um, chanting and doing all the things people do in a protest. And they were with or without masks and close quarters. And we did not see a significant bump in cases. Now, you could say, you could look at, say, Houston, you could look at Arizona, Florida, California right now and say, oh, well, that could be due to that. Um, I suspect that this is probably every place needs to have this 
first wave, significant wave at some point. Uh, and that it's probably more just random because as many places that had protests, there certainly aren't that many people who've had, there aren't that many communities who are suddenly having a huge uptick. I think this is encouraging. It means it's probably relatively safe to be in large gatherings outdoors. Most governors won't agree with me at this point, <laughs> but I think, I think that that has shown that it's probably fairly safe to be in large gatherings outdoors. And, um, you know, that will obviously change once it's winter. This doesn't provide any safety or any idea of what's going to happen indoors, but probably it would be okay uh, with, I think, college football. But, you know, I'm not the one in charge of that, but I think things will be made, uh, decisions will be made for us instead. And I think, you know, the other thing is to have some honest conversations with each other, to look at the actual risks of things, to not try and get hysterical or um, flippant about people's concerns. I think everyone has a different risk tolerance and perceived risk. And I think that's important to recognize that everyone's different. So express some grace with others in that you don't know where they are as far as their health or their loved ones, their close ones that they're worried about in the, the profession they have. So I think, you know, just having some recognition that everyone's in a different spot and not just calling people idiots all the time. I, I have to assume anyone who listens to the show probably feels the same way. And so I'm probably just talking to the choir, uh, which I do miss, even though I can't sing. Uh, finally, have some humility. Recognize that you don't know everything. The experts don't know everything. And uh, anyone who says they do, I think probably is not worth listening to. If they recognize that they don't know everything and that there's a lot that they're still learning and they say this is the best information, I think those are people worth listening to. I'd love to hear your thoughts on COVID-19, either things you want to talk about, on future episodes. I'm going to try and not do all COVID, although it is sort of dominating the healthcare news. Even when we're talking about non-COVID stuff, it still drifts into COVID because frankly, that's kind of where we are in healthcare. But please send your ideas. What's going on in your schools? I'd be real interesting to hear hear from you. You can contact me at the Paradox Show at protonmail.com. You can also just go to the website, make sure you sign up for the newsletter. That way you can make sure you know when all the new shows come out. If you don't already have it, subscribe in your podcast player. Well, everyone stay safe. Hopefully we get back to school, get back to normalcy at some point, and start to learn to live with this thing. And we learn to treat each other with a little bit of love, grace, and kindness. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what the doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash the paradox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com.